0: Here are some great questions from J. John's book 10 um, that I want us to pause and think about. Uh, How would you answer this? I mean, if you dare to it, maybe you'll scribble an answer down or jot a note on your phone. What gives purpose, meaning, and fulfillment to your life? Really, what is it? That's the answer to that question. What governs the way you act? What's the focal point of your life around which your, your very existence hangs? What, what is most often in your thoughts? What, what makes you enthusiastic? What comforts you when you are down? What is it that you desire more of? And what do you tend to talk about and read about? I wonder how you would answer those questions. Well, the answer to those questions will reveal to you the place of of God in your life. For if the answer is anything other than God, then your answer reveals what is the functional God in your life life, what you are actually worshipping in your life. There's a TV series called uh, Welcome to Wrexham, and it's a documentary about the impact of two Hollywood stars, uh, Ryan Reynolds and Robert McElhenney, uh, who bought Wrexham Football Club uh, in North Wales and the impact of of their purchase on on the club and the town. And there's lots of poignant interviews. One of them is Sean. Uh, He is a painter. He's been a painter for 15 years. His grandfather was a painter. His father was a painter. And uh, he does the job now. And he absolutely hates it. He's doing a lot of council jobs. And it's always the same color paint. Every day, without fail, what is it? Magnolia. Nothing changes. The same paint, the same boring conversations without fail. He sits in a bathtub at night, he says, and he thinks to himself, there's got to be more to life than this. His wife didn't want to stick around anymore, and he's now living alone with just occasional access to his two children. Now, the one thing that gives Sean hope and meaning... Is to watch Wrexham football team play. The football club is everything to Sean. It's the place he goes to find joy and uh, and community. It's where he gets his sense of of um, community and uh, his friends, and where he it helps with his mental health. He says. Now, Sean would not say he's religious, but of course he's still a worshiper, isn't he? And what he worships is Wrexham Football Club. That's the functional God in his life. So I wonder what is it that you answered to those questions? And what does God have to say about that? Well, please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. And the first three verses of Exodus chapter 20. We're going to look at that. We're going to look at the first commandment today. And you're going to find that on page 77 in the church Bibles. Page 77. Listen to God addressing a new nation from a shaking mountain all ablaze with fire. Verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. What would have made Israel special among the nations was if they had obeyed this command to have an undivided allegiance to the Lord God. To be a people who worshipped God alone. Last week I suggested uh, three ways that we as new covenant Christians in Christ are shaped and informed by the Ten Commandments given to Israel under the Mosaic Covenant. And so let's consider the first commandment through those three headings. You shall have no other gods before me. First of all, it reveals our Creator, doesn't it? Who is speaking? The God who spoke all these words at Sinai is the uncreated, self-existing, eternal God that we meet in Genesis chapter 1. When atheists ask, well, who created God, they show that they're ignorant of what God has revealed about himself. The Bible's not talking about a created God. This is the great I Am. The one who met Moses at this fiery bush on Mount Sinai who commissioned him to go to Pharaoh and command Pharaoh to let his people go so that they may come and worship him. This is the incomparable uncreated creator who spoke creation into existence. And that certainly fits into our current understanding of the beginning of the universe, the Big Bang. For how else could such a finely tuned universe come into being and exist without an all-powerful designer causing it to be? This is the God who created you. There are no accidental people You have life and breath today because God created you and even now is sustaining you. And one day he will decide that it's time for your heart to stop and for your earthly life to be over. He is the one who's put us into this bountiful and beautiful world full of good things to sustain us and give us joy. Including sport and football, food. Friendship, marriage, sex, children, animal, plants, fruit, and chocolate. This is the God at the center of the universe. As chapter 1 reveals to us, and God said, and it was so. This is the God who spoke all these words. And he goes on, verse 2, I am the Lord your God. Whenever you see uh, Lord in capitals, This indicates that this is God's personal name. My personal name is Paul. And God is saying, the Lord. When we introduce ourselves to people and we give our name to people, it's because we're actually inviting them into a a meaningful relationship with them. If you never give your name, uh, you're saying, look, stay away. I'm remote from you. God is using his own name to remind us that he is the creator God who brings people close to him. He's not remote. He's not unknowable. He invites these people into a relationship with him. He makes promises and he keeps promises. And he invites the people to believe those promises. The events around Sinai are like a a marriage service. In marriage we see two people uh, standing at the front making uh, promises and commitments to each other that bind them together uh, as one before witnesses. Here at Sinai, God is inviting the people who'd left Egypt with Moses into this special covenant relationship with him of love and faithfulness. The Lord would be their God. And they will be um, his treasured possession. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what's happening at Sinai. Who is speaking? It's the great I Am. I am the Lord, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. This is the God who had redeemed them from being slaves under a tyrannical king in Egypt in order to be free to enjoy a relationship of serving and worshipping their creator, God. Now, read in on in your Bibles and you'll see the progressive way this revelation of God unfolds. I mean, I'm excited for uh, the CMAP people to get Isaiah, so that's a really important project we should be praying for, because you get into chapter 40, and uh, uh, to his exiled people, God says, you know, comfort, comfort my people. I almost want to sing Handel's Messiah at this point. I won't do it. I nearly did. No, I won't. Um, And God says... He himself will come to restore his people back to himself. Amazing promises. It's all bound up with this suffering servant. Who could it be? Who could it be? Read on, read on. You'll come to the gospel account. It's Jesus. God come in human flesh. Inexplicably, the creator God takes on human flesh and becomes a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, for he goes to the cross to bear our punishment and our sin. The writer of the Hebrews puts it this way. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets by many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us By his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. The way to know God is by looking at his Son, Jesus Christ. The radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. As you read through the Bible, it's the Son revelation of God, the God who spoke in Genesis 1, the God who uh, entered into a covenant relationship with his people at Sinai, who um, despite the failure of his people promises that a Messiah is going to be the focal point of his purposes and then that Messiah is revealed in Jesus. If you want to know the God at the center of the universe, well, pick up the Bible, read the gospel accounts, Look at Jesus. Uh, They would never forget their last night with him in an upper room. He taught them so many important things. But he says this to Philip in all their hearing. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. This is the God who said, you shall have no other gods before me. Now the logic behind this first command, uh, that why we should have no other gods, is simply this. There is no other God than this God. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So these commands, they reveal the lawgiver. You should have no other gods. There are no other gods. And they also remind us of our of our rights and responsibilities as his creatures, for we were created with the purpose to worship God. See the first word starts with regard to our relationship with God, doesn't it? We talk a lot about human rights, but our human rights are only safeguarded when we start as the commandments do by understanding that our Creator has rights. Now listen to the worship of heaven uh, which John records in Revelation chapter 4. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. He's created all things. He is worthy of all our worship and honor and praise. Do you want to know what life is all about? Do you want to know what is the purpose of your life? Well, the first commandment reminds us exactly of what it is. The great creation purpose. You are created by God to worship and serve God. You want to know what your life's about? It is this, that you would know, worship, serve, enjoy, delight in God. The great commandment uh, uh, summarized by Jesus is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Here is our privilege. Here is our responsibility to see the whole of our lives as an arena to worship and serve the God who created us for His glory. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism famously puts it, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. See, the rights of our God as our Creator is the foundational basis for all our other rights which we cherish. Remove God as our Creator, then you have no objective scientific reason for believing that humans are, uh, have any equality or, or human rights. But when you see and believe that you were created by God and for God, then there's a proper foundational belief in our human dignity. It is because we are created by God in His likeness and in His image that every person, whatever their gifts and abilities, every person has equal dignity and value. But secondly, let's consider what this first commandment teaches us, about us, that it reveals our Sinfulness. See, as our Creator, He alone has the right to be worshipped and, and served as God to receive all the worship and praise and devotion of our lives. But what is sin? Well, sin is the rejection of this purpose. It is the rejection of having God at the center of our lives. Sin is putting other things at the center of lives. A displacement of the true and living God um, To, in a sense, determine what we think will be the most important thing. I wonder what was your honest answer to those questions at the start. What is your functional God? You shall have no other gods before me. That commandment actually reveals our crooked sinfulness. He deserves to be worshipped alone. But in our sinfulness, we are prone to make ourselves other gods that we worship in his place. All, all the, um, the world religions, all the other life philosophies and worldviews that seek to find uh, meaning and understand ultimate reality, I think it's a testimony that we are deep down, all of us, worshippers. In, in some religions, there are lots of idols. In others, uh, there's no idols. They're they just uh, are what prophets have said about uh, what they think about God, or there are worldview philosophies, and they, 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 they say, well, this is what ultimate meaning is about. But, you know, if the God who revealed himself as As Jesus Christ is not at the center of someone's religion or philosophy or faith. It is a false religion. It is a deceitful philosophy. It is a foolish and superstitious faith. The largest growing religious group in the UK is the No Religion Group. Up to now about... over. 36%, I think, which means people like Sean, doesn't it, whose religion is now Wrexham Football Club. The not-religious group are, of course, still a worshipping people because we were created to be worshippers. The language of worship and devotion is actually all around us. Listen to sports commentators obsessed with the talk of, of the record of human achievements, of personal glory, of the uh, luminescent stars of sport. They can't help themselves on Match of the Day. They're worshiping all the time. It's the same in the, in the world of music. We're heading to the Hollywood Oscar season. It'll same about film. We deify humans. While ignoring the Creator God. You see, our default position since the rebellion of our first parents is that we worship and serve the created things rather than the creator. We fixate on the visible stuff of the created world and we look to find our meaning and our purpose by pursuing and acquiring possessions and wealth and comfort and and acclaim and pleasure. We take the good things that God has given and created and we make them God things in our lives. And and all the while we ignore the good creator who sustains our every heartbeat and breath. The the tragedy is that when we, that what we're doing is that we're worshipping something that is not worthy of worship. And it is an appalling affront to the true and living God who alone is worthy. To worship other false gods is a personal rejection of God. And it is actually a, a relational offense to him. Just to get a flavor of this. Imagine wives discovering that the wallpaper picture on the smartphone or computer of your husband is another woman. That when your husband is upset or discouraged, they don't come to you but they turn to this other Woman for their comfort and consolation. Husbands. Imagine buying uh, your wife a very expensive dress and shoes and coat. And uh, she puts it on and she just looks absolutely fabulous. And then she goes out the door to go into town to pick up a stranger in a bar. That is the horror of making what is not God. God. You shall have no other gods before me, God declares from Sinai. In the original language, uh, before me is literally before my face. And so when his people turn to idols and worship other gods before his face, it's cheating on God. It's spiritual adultery right in front of the face of God. See, the problem with idols and worship of false gods are are multiple. I mean, the Bible tells us that they will disappoint us. They will exhaust us because they cannot help us. We're the ones who serve and help them. Uh, They ensnare us. They distort us. But the main problem is fundamentally this, that they're deeply offensive to the God who should be alone, worshipped as God. And they make us deserving of his just anger. My friends, as you look at a kind of a a society where there's so much broken, this is actually God's anger being worked out in our culture. He hands us over to the consequences of our sinful choices. And as we see people struggling with addiction and shame and enslaving lusts and foolish thinking of growing wickedness, evil and greed and depravity, it's all a result of this misplaced worship. In the past week, we've heard the conviction of a policeman who relentlessly degraded and belittled and sexually assaulted women, a man who's put lust at the center of his life and has just pursued it and pursued it and pursued it now to his utter shame and to probably a terrible incarceration. And do you know what? There will come a day of judgment when we will all stand before a God who created us and we will have to give an account for our lives. This God before, before whose face we have worshipped other gods and pursued other idols, we will stand and meet Him face to face. What will that be like? If it causes you to fear that thought, and in truth it should cause us all to fear, for none of us have loved the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and strength, we have found meaning and purpose in false gods. We have cheated on God. We are spiritual adulterers. What would it be like, what will it be like to stand before your Creator knowing your guilt in this matter? Simon Peter was a fisherman and in Luke chapter 5 you can read that after a very frustrating night of fishing where he and his friends had caught absolutely nothing. Uh, as they come back to shore, Jesus is surrounded by crowds, and he, he asks, Can they step into the boat? And can they push out from the shore a little bit so he can teach the crowds? And so they observe him teaching the crowds, and then he says to them uh, in daylight, Well, go out and lay down, lay, throw out your nets, and uh, go fishing. And, you know, they must have been thinking, This is crazy. You fish at night, it's not going to work in the day. But Peter says, Because you've said so, I'll do it. And when he does so, they caught such a large number of fish that the nets begin to break. And as they try and haul the fish into the boat, the boats are sinking. There's so much weight of fish. And when Simon Peter saw this, what did he do? He fell at the knees of Jesus and he said, Go away from me, for I am a sinful man. Now, is that not a strange response? He just hit the jackpot on the biggest haul of fish, and the prospect of making money was very large when they took all this fish to market. Why this response? Well, simply because only someone with the power of the Creator God could accomplish such a thing. And as he realizes who he is before, he is overwhelmed by his sinfulness as he comes to Before the greatness and the holiness of God. And he says, away from me. I'm a sinful man. And so my friends, if um, the voice of Sinai causes us to fear, then listen to one of my favorite verses from the Apostle Paul. Here is a trustworthy saying, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom Paul says, I am the worst But for this very reason, I will show mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example to those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. See, there's hope for people who've cheated on God. There's hope for those who've committed spiritual adultery. Uh, That was a beautifully read Section from First Thessalonians. Did you hear what Paul said about these former idolaters who'd worshipped other gods? They had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait from his, for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. The wrath of God is coming because we do break the commandments, because we don't put God at the center. But if we turn to the Lord Jesus, who He raised from the dead, then actually He rescues us from the coming wrath as idolaters get changed into worshippers of the true and living God. And thirdly, you see, this commandment points us to the freedom of the Spirit. To become a Christian is to see our sin... And in repentance towards God, put our trust in Jesus as our Savior. As it says in Romans 10, to declare with our mouths, Jesus is Lord. And believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead. And it says, you will be saved if you do that. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is God's declaration. Jesus is Lord. Because He humbled Himself becoming a man, humbling himself even to being a servant, even to death on a cross, God has highly exalted him, it says in Philippians, giving him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, um, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is Lord is a profound statement. It is to recognize that Jesus is first in our lives, that he's number one. He is the one who deserves our undivided allegiance. And do you know what? The Holy Spirit will be at work in us to lead us to be those who worship him as the sovereign Lord to the glory of God. This is what the Spirit's going to be doing in our lives, to obey all that he had commanded because Jesus is Lord. And next week, we're going to think about the second commandment, Uh, The second word from God, and we're going to think more about uh, how the ongoing work of the Spirit in our lives is to help us throw off the idols, throw away the idols that tend to grip our hearts, so that we can worship God alone. For you see, this discipleship is our ultimate destiny. Let me finish with Revelation chapter five, verse twelve. It says, and it's what an awesome vision it conjures for us. 10,000 times 10,000 angelic hosts encircle the throne of God. Here is the praise of heaven centered on the Lord God. And in loud voice they declare, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fall down and worshiped. This is where all of history is heading, my friends. The worship and the praise to the Lamb who was slain. This is our God. This is the one we get to worship and serve this coming week. If you don't have Jesus as your Lord of your life, turn to Him today. Repent of your sins. He's the only way you can be rescued from the wrath to come. Throw away your idols. Serve him alone.